0: Hello everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the Cardiology Trials podcast. I am Mohamed Rouzia, joined by Andrew Foy and John Mandrolla. In this episode, we will be discussing important trials of ACE inhibitors in patients with acute myocardial infarction, the SAVE trial and the AIR trial. For a full summary of the trials, please listen to our earlier episodes from this week. Let me first provide you with a brief summary of each of these trials. The survival and ventricular enlargement trial or SAVE trial was a trial of captopril on mortality and morbidity in patients with left ventricular dysfunction after myocardial infarction. The trial was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1992. The immediate consequence of a large heart attack is decreased myocardial contractility. Compensatory mechanisms governed by the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system and sympathetic nervous system become activated and may lead to ventricular dilation or remodeling, which has negative short- and long-term consequence for the heart muscle. By the mid-1980s, Angiotensin-converting enzyme-inhibitors were commonly used for patients with chronic systolic heart failure, and laboratory work had shown that they could improve ventricular remodeling, reduce heart failure, and prolong survival in animal models of acute myocardial infarction. The survival and ventricular enlargement trial sought to test the hypothesis that administration of captopril in patients with acute myocardial infarction complicated by left ventricular dysfunction but who did not have overt heart failure would reduce mortality and morbidity over long-term follow-up eligible patients were between 21 to 80 years of age with a definite myocardial infarction occurring 3 to 16 days prior to randomization with a left ventricular ejection fraction of 40% or less as, me- as measured by radionuclide ventriculography. The average age of patients was 59 years, and 82% were men. Approximately one-third of patients had a prior myocardial infarction. More than 20% had diabetes, 40% had hypertension, and over 50% were current smokers. The mean time to randomization was 11 days. Patients received either captopril or a a placebo. The initial dose of the blinded study drug was 12.5 mg. The target dose was 25 mg three times a day by the end of the inpatient phase and was then increased to 50 mg three times a day unless side effects occurred there was no pre-specified level of a blood pressure in the titration regimen. The trial had no pre-specified hypothesis test to determine sample size. A prospectively defined measures of outcomes included all-cause death, cardiovascular death, incidence of a clinical congestive heart failure, and first hospitalization for heart failure. A total of 2,231 patients were included in the final final analysis, 1,116 in in the placebo arm and 1,115 in the captopril arm. The mean follow-up time was 3.5 years. Compared to placebo, captopril significantly reduced all-cause death by 19%. 20% 20% versus a 25% and cardiovascular death by 20 perc- by 21%. 17% versus a 21%. It also significantly reduced the clinical heart failure by 37%. 11% versus 16%. Heart failure hospitalization 14% versus 17% and non-fatal myocardial infarction, 12% versus 15%. In conclusion, in patients with acute acute myocardial infarction complicated by significant LV dysfunction, but not overt clinical heart failure, captopril significantly reduced death over 3.5 years of follow-up, with a number needed to treat of approximately 20 patients. The acute infarction ramipril efficacy or ARRI trial was a trial of ramipril on mortality and morbidity of survivors of acute myocardial infarction with clinical evidence of heart failure. The trial was published in The Lancet in 1993. As you just heard, the SAVE trial demonstrated that the administration of angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor captopril following myocardial infarction complicated by LV dysfunction but without a clinical heart failure, significantly improved morbidity and mortality over three and a half years of follow-up. Yet many post-myocardial infarction patients at that time had a clinical heart failure, and this represented a vulnerable population of patients with increased morbidity and mortality compared to those without a clinical heart failure the acute infarction ramipril efficacy trial sought to test the hypothesis that administration of of ramipril to patients with acute myocardial infarction complicated by acute congestive heart failure would reduce morbidity and mortality versus a placebo eligible patients were 18 years of age or or older with a definite acute myocardial infarction occurring 2 to 9 days prior to randomization with clinical evidence of congestive heart failure at any time after the index myocardial infarction the average age of patients was 65 years and 74% were men approximately one quarter of patients had a prior myocardial infarction 12% had diabetes and 30% had hypertension the ejection fraction of the study participants was not systematically assessed as part of the study protocol. 62% had a Q wave myocardial infarction and the predominant location was anterior. Patients were initiated on ramipril 2.5 milligram twice daily or matching a placebo for 2 days after which the dose was increased to 5 milligram twice daily. The primary study endpoint was all-cause mortality. A total of 2006 patients were recruited from 144 centers in 14 countries. However, 20 patients from one center were excluded from the final analysis due to inconsistencies in the data. According to the investigators, the exclusion of these patients did not change the final results. Compared to placebo, Ramipril significantly reduced all-cause death by 27%, 17% versus 23%. In conclusion, in patients with acute myocardial infarction complicated by clinical congestive heart failure, Ramipril significantly reduced death over 1.3 years of follow-up, with a number needed to treat of approximately 17 patients. Uh, so now I will give the mic to uh, Drew and John t- to tell us what they think about the SAVE and the AIR trials.
1: Yeah, thanks, Ruzi. Uh, my my biggest takeaway from these trials, uh, SAVE and AIR, and then also um, thinking about these in the context of the trials from last week, JISI-3 and ISIS-4, I think that... Um, this is conclusive uh, evidence that ACE inhibitors are effective in post-MI patients uh, across the entire sort of spectrum of phenotypes of, of, of patients, clinical phenotypes of patients with acute MI. And when I say clinical phenotypes, I mean patients who are very stable all the way to patients who, uh, may be decompensated with heart failure and significant LV dysfunction. I think from all four of these trials, we have very, very strong signals that ACE inhibitors are effective at all time courses of MI. Um, that was really from GC3 and ISIS4 when the, when the drugs were started almost immediately. And then they seem to have the greatest benefit in patients who are uh, in clinical phenotypes of patients uh, with congestive heart failure and LV dysfunction. Uh, And these patients certainly seem to benefit the most. Um, And those would be the patients that were studied in uh, the SAVE trial and the AIR trial. And and the signals in SAVE and in AIR are very strong. Um, Some of the strongest treatment effects that we're probably going to see across the spectrum um, of studies that that we review um, for this book and for our Substack, um, These are, are very strong treatment effects in, in, pretty, uh, in pretty well-run uh, studies that I think have sort of minimal limitations. If you look at a trial uh, like AIR, really I have minimal external validity concerns about that trial. There was no limits placed on age or blood pressure at entry. Uh, the average start time uh, to get to get the, the drug started was five days post mi. I, I do think that in contemporary practice, you could that would be bumped up a couple days. Um, but we have a six percent absolute reduction uh, in all cause mortality at one point three years and and also importantly, the trial, was powered to test that hypothesis you often don't see that in these trials they they tend you know they tend to make educated guesses about the hypothesis that they're testing and you know sometimes they get it right and a lot of times they don't I mean these these investigators had a very good idea of um, the mortality that they expected in the control group they were testing for a 25% relative reduction uh, uh, in all-cause mortality, and and they got more than that. Uh, they got like a 30% reduction in all-cause mortality, a 6% absolute uh, difference in all-cause mortality. So um, really very strong. And then when you pair that with the SAVE trial, where there was also a 5% absolute reduction in mortality, a 4% absolute reduction in cardiovascular death, 5% uh, absolute reduction in development of clinical heart failure. I mean, these are exceedingly strong treatment effects from drugs that are widely available. They're now, they're all very cheap. Uh, and they're, frankly, they're they're easy to use. Um, and these trials, the way these drugs are started is exactly the way that I use them in clinical practice. And I find them to be incredibly... Uh, effective, um, and safe and well tolerated. Uh, so I think, I I think these are great trials. I think the whole, um, these four trials are all really strong trials. And, and as I mentioned, I think it's some of the, some of the best trials, some of the best treatment effects that we're going to see, um, in this collection of clinical trials that we review. And I, I just, to go back to JISI-3 and ISIS-4 that had actually relatively small treatment effects, we have to consider that that these were very short-term trials. Um, JISI looked at, uh, JISI's primary endpoint was at six weeks and ISIS-4 uh, was at five weeks. And still in these trials, we had statistically significant reductions in all-cause mortality, albeit they were, they were small. Um, but I mean, these are for, for drugs that uh, don't really do anything to treat the actual pathophysiology of the infarct, like antiplatelets and thrombolytics, they're really um, leading to changes in, in the body's compensatory response and the heart's sort of ability to adjust in the setting of a heart attack. So I, I just, I, I think they're uh, remarkable drugs in that way. And in clinical practice, um they're really my my go-to drugs in in post heart attack patients
2: what does it mean andrew that in the air trial that they powered for 25% reduction and got that because i noticed that most trials are powered for for something and it the effect size almost never reaches that
1: yeah uh, right and that that's an observation that that i've made as well but still sometimes uh, i don't know Maybe saying they got lucky is too strong, but there are times when they power for something, and let's say the trial is underpowered, but they still end up having a statistically significant reduction. Um, I just think, to me, it just strengthens uh, it strengthens the results to say that you know we specifically sought to test this hypothesis um, that this event rate was going to be the event rate in the control group. And that we were going to test to see if if ramapril in this case reduces uh, all cause death by twenty five percent, and and it did. I mean, it actually did better than that. Um, so uh,
2: this this uh, this effect size, until now, we really the only effect size that we've seen that really reaches this level is probably the effect of harm in antiarrhythmic drugs and cast. Um, so this this might be the strongest signal we've we've seen so far,
1: yeah but it has to be sort of considered in the context of these strong signals in save and air are longer term, so save was three and a half years, and air was one point three years if we if we go back to like the thrombolysis and aspirin data, we saw pretty we saw reasonably strong effect sizes for like in-hospital mortality. So you can imagine that if you were to like expand one of those trials, for example, an early thrombolytic trial for a year, I mean, probably it would have an effect size greater than this. At least that would be my estimate. Okay. Um, but, but yeah, for the for the trials that we have, for the duration of time that they were studied or followed until the primary endpoint. These certainly stand out as probably the strongest signal so far.
2: And going back to you know you guys, you and Aruzier work in CCUs, and it seems to me when I go and do consultative work there for EP, most of most patients are on beta blockers first. It seems like the ACE inhibitor signal is a lot stronger than the post-my beta blocker signal. Either of you want to say anything about that?
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, I think that's a very good observation. Uh, I think beta blockers are the drug to go to by most people right now, and the trials we discussed so far don't support that. It supports that ACE inhibitors have a significantly stronger benefit, and we've seen that in several trials. And even in the AS trials like Save and uh, AIR trial, and uh, before that GC3 uh, and ISIS 4 the number of people who were prescribed beta blockers in these trials was any- anywhere between 20 to 30%. So even during these trials, you know, not many people used beta blockers. But now it seems they are the go-to drug. And uh, I think, I don't know why they are like, yeah, the go-to drug for everyone now after myocardial infarction
1: right this is something that i i struggle with in clinical practice Um, i make this a teaching a a teaching point every time i'm on service to review uh clinical trials and evidence for beta blockers and ace inhibitors in post-mi patients um to to short to show the the learners and the trainees that if you're if you're looking at the strength of the evidence we should be using ACE inhibitors much more and beta blockers much less. i We talked about it, I think, on the first pod that we did when we reviewed Bhat uh, and ISIS one. Uh, I don't know if it's just a founder effect with beta blockers that they were sort of like the first studied cardiac drug that that had a benefit. i I, I don't know. I, I don't understand it, but there is an enthusiasm for beta blockers in clinical practice today, which in my opinion, far exceeds um, the evidence base for them. And and most of the time, look, I think people get away with it. Whenever you do any intervention in clinical medicine, there's three possibilities. Uh, one is it'll help, two, it will hurt, and three, it makes no difference. And makes no difference is always the most likely outcome for any intervention that we do, particularly with drugs. And so I think most of the time, Patients get started on beta blockers and and it's fine. It probably doesn't help them, but it but it doesn't really hurt them. But I do see patients not infrequently that are are hurt from beta blockers in the sense that they're struggling hemodynamically, um, and they sort of need to be bailed out. I mean, the beta blocker needs to be stopped, and they need they need ACE inhibition uh, and diuresis, um, and. Again, I mean, I think if we used ACE inhibitors more liberally, uh, we we'd probably improve the care of post MI patients, even in contemporary medicine, um, compared to what we're doing now.
2: I, I I just had this I just had this crazy idea. Um maybe maybe it doesn't belong. I know we'll get to it down the road, but there was a very famous trial in, in 2021 where our beloved uh, Arnie uh, sacubitril valsartan was compared to ramapril in post-MI patients the paradise MI trial and this is right off the heels of sacubitril valsartan being shown beneficial in LV dysfunction in paradigm and the crazy thing is it it uh it wasn't it wasn't significant it wasn't better than ramapril. and now maybe maybe the deal is that ramapril is just looking at air trial, maybe Ramapril is just such a good comparator that it's hard to be better than that in, in post-MI LV dysfunction patients. What, what do you think of that crazy idea?
1: Yeah, I I think it's, I think that's very likely to be the case. Um, and I think that with Secubitril Valsartan, there's the other, uh, issue of, of safety. I mean, it, it, that, that drug will make people more hypotensive than, than just ACEs or ARBs. And I also think the dose titration of that uh, doesn't, doesn't allow as much freedom as, as ACE inhibitors. Um, I, for me, what, what I do in clinical practice is I always, I start low, but I titrate up quickly and almost always with Captopril. And it's, it's a great exercise in clinical practice because one, the effects of the drug uh, occur fairly quickly um, so you can see if people are going to tank their blood pressure they almost never do it's always uh, I think it's a great learning experience for students and trainees when you start somebody on captopril who let's say their systolics is in the 90s or low 100s they're they're, they're sort of like that hemodynamically tenuous post-MI patient who's uh, they're not doing great but they're not sort of clinically decompensating either and it's like all right we got to get this person ready to you know to go back to the world and and live life and you start them on captopril at i'll start at like either the 3.125 but mostly the the 6.25 dose and everybody's nervous about what's going to happen with their blood pressure and their renal you know their uh, urine output and it's almost always the case that the blood pressure stays the same or slightly goes up. Their renal output usually improves um, and the patients the patients, feel better. Um, and so I don't know that you can kind of get that quite as much with Secubitroval because you have to start with the 24, 26 dose. And for patients that, that start hypotensive with that, no way um, i think it's dangerous and i don't feel the same way with with captopril so i can achieve a lot you know i feel much better with a drug like captopril or even ramipril where you can start it at 1.25 you, you just don't i don't think you have that that degree of freedom with secubitril valsartan the trial was negative um there's definitely a lot more hypotension in it and why why use a drug that costs 100 times more. I mean, I wouldn't want that for myself. So why would I do it for other people? Um, so anyway, I mean, th- that's some of my thinking on the comparison of ACE inhibition with sacubitril valsartan in these post-MI patients. If they're post-MI patients who are stable, and their blood pressure is not an issue, the sacubitril valsartan will be fine. But it's not necessarily better. Based on the clinical trial, the one clinical trial, and it's going to cost a lot more. So, uh, to me, it's not even really, it's not even a thought. You know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give it a thought for myself or for a family member. So, I don't think about, I don't think about it too much, uh, for my patients, to be quite honest.
2: Do you, after you use captopril, do you then switch to a longer acting? When do you yeah. send them home on a
1: longer acting yeah. base? No, typically what what I'll do is get them to the twenty five, uh, three times a day dose, and then send them on lisinopril ten or twenty, depending on where their final pressures sort of uh sort of end. But typically the the blood pressures will go up in these patients when they're sort of appropriately initiated on on ACE inhibitors. At least my experience is the blood pressure. By the by a few days later, you know twenty four to forty eight hours uh, tends to be ten to twenty points higher. Yeah. And they're safe oftentimes their heart rate will will be lower without the use of a beta blocker. I don't and especially if the patients are hemodynamically tenuous, I don't. I don't start beta blockers in house. Um, I will say the patient's going to be seen in the office in a week or two, and depending on how they feel and how their hemodynamics are and their blood pressure, you know, it's worth a consideration at that time. Um, and, and and there's no point to necessarily be coy about this. I mean, uh, we haven't talked about the Commit trial or the Capricorn trial yet, but but they are both negative. I mean, I I just don't feel strongly about beta blockers in post MI patients. Um, if there's particular reasons why I think they would benefit from them, I use them. You know, like if there's a lot of ventricular ectopy, you know, they, if there's post infarct angina or something like that, or if there's significant high blood pressure. But if there's none of those things, I I feel no compulsion to use beta blockers, especially in the in hospital or early post hospital period. And that does occasionally put me at odds with, with people who want to, you know, look at our, our practice patterns and things of that nature. But I think the evidence supports supports what I'm doing.
0: Yeah. and I think I wanted to emphasize the point about the blood pressure because these patients, especially when they have uh, LV dysfunction they will have significant arterial vasoconstriction so giving them an afterload reduction does indeed help them so i think Absolutely. for the, so i think for the trainees, if you see systolic blood pressure of hundred of 100 or 110 it does not necessarily mean you don't you can't give ACE inhibitors you may actually improve blood pressure by reducing the afterload so i just wanted to emphasize that point
1: yeah, that's a, and that's a great point. And I always try to talk about that on service, which is these patients need afterload reduction. And that patient with LV dysfunction and a sort of low blood pressure needs afterload reduction, and they do much better with it. And again, you can see these improvements with your eyes. I mean, this isn't something that you need to, that you need to study in 20,000 people. You can see these patients get better. If you do a beta blocker in these patients, you will see exactly the opposite in enough people. Um, I, would you agree with that, Rousier?
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, even in ambulatory patients with systolic heart failure, starting beta blockers can, in some of them, cause a fluid overload in the first few weeks. Yeah, and,
1: it, and and there's always people are coy about how they talk about it. it's like oh you just just increased the diuretic it's like well why don't we talk about why they're getting fluid overloaded because you're putting them into heart failure <laughs> nobody likes that you ever notice nobody likes to say that yeah, yeah. yeah even if you look at like the um the high intensity up titration in the strong trial it's all about like with the beta blockers you may have to increase like the diuretic and it's like Is anybody thinking about what's going on here? I mean, we're making people's heart failure worse, and we're like, let's keep pressing forward. I mean, it doesn't make any sense.
0: Yeah. I mean, beta blockers certainly have a role in patients with chronic systolic heart failure, and we will discuss this in future episodes. I don't want listeners and trainees to think that beta blockers uh, don't benefit anyone at all, Uh, but you just need to know which patients... Uh, should get beta blocker and which patients should not.
2: Yeah. I I think it's pretty clear. I mean this this could be a short podca- podcast podcast because it's just so obvious.
0: Yeah. Yeah I agree. And I think having four trials all are in the same direction uh is really strong. And that's what we've seen with the GC three, ISIS four, save and area trials.
1: And there there are a few more trials in this space. Um one is positive, and there's another one that's negative. I I don't feel like they have the same sort of uh, quality as these trials, which is um, or they've had as much impact. And so, I was at least not planning on including them in in the book. Um, but if, if for anybody that's listening, I don't want them to think like, oh, there's trials that we don't we don't know about or that we missed. I mean, we conscientiously have chosen these because we think that they're they're representative of sort of the best evidence that's out there.